of things all the time that, that don't make much sense if you really think about it. Statements that seem pretty contradictory. Uh, like if you were asking someone, so how was the game? How did the team do? And you responded, pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. What does that even mean? All right, or, or, or you might express some frustration by saying, good grief. Or you might uh, hear a news report about how uh, during a certain time of the night, a, uh, during a prisoner check at a, at a prison or at a jail, they might say the prisoner was found missing. What does that mean? Found missing. Or somebody might say, I have something for you to buy. It is a genuine imitation. There's more cynical ideas about this, of course. You know, there's military intelligence <clears throat> or ethics for attorneys, attorney ethics. Or even uh, the statement we all love, the temporary tax increase. These two words just do not go together. What happens quite often for us is Jesus' statements can be confusing, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you realize that entire uh, systems of ethics, competing systems of ethics, the idea of how then should we live have been based on interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this very section of the book of Matthew that we have been studying together. Jesus' statements can be seem confusing. On, on the one hand, Jesus is teaching us a lot of what we should and shouldn't be doing, what we should and shouldn't be about. And he throws in then statements like from Matthew 5.20 as we've looked at, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of like, whoa, Jesus, I thought you were bringing gospel grace. And then you drop that one on us. Or what we'll see even further in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But on the other hand, we know of verses like Galatians 3.11 where we're told it is evident that no one is justified or, or forgiven before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. How does that jive with your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? Or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But at the same time we're told no one is justified before God. No one is forgiven by works of the law. Jesus' teachings can seem almost contradictory. I know both ideas meet in the gospel. If, if you uh, have sat here or understand God's word for long enough, you know that our righteousness, our unrighteousness, must be covered by the very righteousness of Christ. That's where these ideas meet together. I want you to understand the ultimate command that could sum up the section of Scripture that we are in here this morning is this. Let God transform you. Let God 
transform you. We have this tendency to hear a command and think, I cannot do that. Or, I could do that. Everything that Jesus is teaching in our passage here this morning is to help people to move back. And, And really, everything that Jesus teaches altogether that we read throughout the Gospels are to help people to move back into a redeemed relationship with God by his righteous standard. God does not lessen his standard in order for us to be able to have a relationship with him. And God does not call for us to raise our standard to improve our behavior so that hopefully maybe we could have a relationship with him. God transforms us. First by opening a relationship with God through Christ in which we are able to stand before him in Christ's righteousness and then transforms our life so that we grow more and more like Christ, as we walk in relationship with him. Here we come to an aspect of what uh, watching what we say. And it is in, in uh, this context of Jesus both communicating, you are not righteous enough. You need my righteousness on your behalf. And also in the context that we can read it having changed, been, been given the righteousness of Christ and the Lord changing us to say, okay, Lord, so how then should I live? So <clears throat> on the one hand, it can seem kind of nitpicky. On the other hand, it can seem giving us great guidance. And it has to do with that area of watching what we say. So we pick up in verse 33 of Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, referencing again to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, which uh, many that were listening to Jesus felt like they measured up pretty well against. And Jesus is giving them, as with the other commands that we see him explaining, he's giving them... You know, you have heard this command, but here's God's actual standard of it. And this is, this command is kind of, we don't have a lot that translates into it in our present world. But I think that we will still see Jesus' teaching very applicable for us. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Next we see Jesus moving, verse 38, into matters of personal liberty. Where he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So why are we looking at these two teachings together here this morning? <clears throat> the warning about what kind of oaths we take and should we take oaths and, and then uh, the, the warnings regarding uh, leveling up from just, well, what you do to me, I get to do to you back, that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What do they have in common? Well, I'm, we're looking at both of them here this morning because both can be taken very legalistically, Right? You know, you, if you're approaching this very legalistically, you could say, well, oh, no, I just told the person, I promise I will call you. I'm not supposed to, to, to do anything other than just say, I'll call you. Or, or, or I, I just said, no, no, I swear, that's the truth. Oh, shoot, I'm just supposed to say, that's the truth. Or that person just slapped me on the cheek. Wait, come back. Come back. I'm supposed to let you slap me on the other one. Right? Or, or you're being asked for change in Indy. Walking down the street and, 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 and you, you think to yourself, you know, I'm pretty sure he's going to use this money for alcohol since he's drunk and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. But Jesus tells me, give to everybody that begs from me. These teachings of Christ can be treated very legalistically. First, I want to remind you, as I've been saying, that of the double message of the Sermon on the Mount that helps to clarify these ideas, I think. Similarly to what <clears throat> I'm talking about, that what seems contradictory between being saved by grace and growing in personal holiness, there seems to me to be a double message of the Sermon on the Mount. The one group listening to Jesus is thinking that they don't need to be saved. They're thinking, I'm tracking pretty well with the Mosaic Law. I'm, I'm keeping things pretty well. I think that God is going to be, is and is going to be very impressed with me. So those, these people are not following what Jesus is teaching. He's not, they're not following what Jesus is about. Those who are not following Christ, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is good luck trying to impress God. It's impossible. Good luck. The message for the unbeliever is the standards of the kingdom of God are unattainable in your own righteousness. That's why he keeps saying, you've heard that this is the law, but you know what? This is actually God's standard. You're doing pretty well not committing adultery. But guess what? God's standard of adultery is broken if you look on another person in lust for them. Hopefully their self-righteousness is going to be deconstructed. By the time they get to verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you're going to stand in your own righteousness, you better start measuring yourself by God's standard of righteousness. The other group that we consider 
are those that are believing Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. As we're told in Matthew 3 that Jesus travels about Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. These are followers of Christ in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. And the message for the believer is that Jesus has met God's perfect standard for us. And the standards of the kingdom are what God is transforming us into by the work of his Holy Spirit in our life. And this group, this is the group that I am preaching this message here to this morning because I am assuming that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. If you have not thrown yourself on the righteousness of Christ alone, given up on pursuing a relationship with God based on your own self-righteousness, Jesus' message to you is good luck. But if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, let Jesus challenge you to be transformed, to let your trustworthy word speak from integrity. Your trustworthy word, your word that can be trusted. Let God transform you as more and more the words that you say speak out of a heart of integrity. So he lifts, he, he refers back to them this, this statement from the Old Testament law, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This was very much twisted by the religious leaders that kind of started uh, clarifying, okay, so what things is it that you, if you swear by them, you have to abide by what you promised? You know, that's why he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, or, or it is the, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, it all belongs to God. Stop fooling yourselves. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I mean, you know, Grecian formula might work for a little bit, but let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus is speaking into some specific items of the Jewish culture. But we see the problem today as well. The lack of integrity. You know, people will pay lawyers to write up a, a multi-page multi contract, and then they'll pay another lawyer to help them get out of the contract. And that whole reason for the contract is because people can't be trusted. When integrity and trustworthiness are in short supply, people need systems of assurance. And the Jewish teachers had to, they had developed a whole system of things that were more or less binding. Okay? Like, hey, so my neighbor promised me that he would do this, and now he's telling me, well, I didn't say I swear to God I will do it. I said I'll swear by Jerusalem that I will do it. People had to bolster their claims by telling the truth with the integrity not of their word, but the integrity of other things. Okay, one writer says, Jesus taught that our conversation should be so honest and our character so true that we would not need crutches to get people to believe us. 
Jesus also spoke about this in Matthew 23, which we'll get to in a few years here. It says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? So even in that moment, he's kind of speaking to this hypocrisy. It's like, do you not even see all this system of, well, if you swear by this, you have to, you have to follow through with it. But if you just swear by this, it's only a white lie. It's like, do you not see the depravity of your hearts? That you have to build this whole system of whether or not you have to keep your word. Have you ever heard somebody say, I swear on my grandma's grave. I swear to God. So in their system, those would be like different amount of binding. I don't think our culture cares about it anymore, to tell you the truth, whether or not they need to, you know, again, that's why we have lawyers and contracts. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. There's probably more and more, you know, statements to that. We do that in our culture as well. Our word should be trustworthy. If we know Christ is our Savior and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, he should be transforming our word into being trustworthy. Others should be able to trust what we say without promising and guaranteeing and all these other things. People's trust should come from our track record of being trustworthy. A track record of being trustworthy comes from an integrity of our heart. An integrity of heart comes from God doing a life-changing work in us. With people that know you, why would it be that you'd have to give someone assurances that you're, you're telling the truth or that you intend to follow through? You know, usually with Kelly, I'll say, I'm, I'm putting a reminder on my phone right now. We're actually not talking about that sort of thing. I mean, it's not good to be forgetful, guys. <clears throat> We're talking about the person that's like, okay, they got their fingers crossed behind their back. Yeah, I'll do it. Trust me. We should be so virtuous that we don't need to swear that we're telling the truth. Our reputation should be such that people don't require you. You promise? Because I know what you did last time. You weaseled out of it. That's not being trustworthy. God plans to transform us into trustworthy people. Let your trustworthy word speak from an integrity of heart. That's what God plans to do in you you know Christ as your Savior. Well, secondly here, let Jesus challenge you to be transformed, to let your responses be spirit-led, not flesh-driven. All right, so Jesus quotes from the law, a law of retribution, which is basically saying the, the punishment should fit the crime. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take your, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would, be, would borrow from you. Like I said, these laws are governing retribution. They had, had more to do with laws regarding lawsuits than actual physical harm. In other words, <clears throat> you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and, and there's other places where it actually says a foot for a foot. You know, so, so if Barsabbas backs up his, his ox cart and accidentally crushes this guy's foot in the marketplace, they, by the time uh, Jesus was on the scene here, they wouldn't have come out and been like, ah, it's obvious that you crushed this guy's foot, Barsabbas. Get your foot over here. We've got to crush it. You know, by, the, by this time, there would have been an element of a monetary um, settlement that it would have been expected. They, they would have expected there to be a financial settlement for the damage that had been done. And this law guided that that settlement needs to be fitting to the damage that was done. Okay? Um, <clears throat> they would have had an appropriate settlement. That's what the law was explaining. So how, how should Christians respond to aggressive attacks against them? Verse 39 through 42, the following verses are explaining, giving different examples and illustrations of what Jesus ultimately says when he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Don't be in a situation where it's like, okay, well, this is all I have to do for you. This is all the law requires. And then he gives example of, of like if someone slaps you on, what is it, the right cheek? Yeah, slaps you on the right cheek. Okay, so the understanding here is that, sorry lefties, the understanding in that world is everyone is right-handed. And if you're standing in front of me, and in order for me to slap you on the right cheek, because I'm right-handed, I'm not going to be like, whoa, miss it, you know, and get you from the other side there. No, I am going to perform what was the most offensive action in a social setting is to backhand you in the right cheek. He's describing getting slapped on the right cheek. The assumption is it's coming from the right hand and it's the back of the right hand smacking the face. Both in Roman and Jewish culture, this was considered an extreme insult. So should there be retribution? Should we go, we should we respond as we are tempted to respond to such offense? Or as he talks about the taking of the tunic, this would have been in surety for a lawsuit where, where the person is like, okay, I've received this judgment against you, therefore I'm taking your coat and it's like bailing out, right? Or bondsmen, you know, bonding out. <clears throat> it's like once you, once you fulfill this this settlement against you, I'll give you your cloak back. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Give him your tunic also. It's like, well, you, you haven't taken my shirt, but here it is. The Roman soldier was uh, could uh, was allowed in an occupied territory to take a 
a Jewish person or some other place where they were where they were occupying by law by Roman law if a person grabbed someone and said here carry my stuff they were required to go one mile or 1,000 feet 1,000 paces uh, by by uh, that day's measurement <clears throat> we see this happen with um, Simon of Cyrene when they grab him and say carry this guy's cross uh, when Jesus is crucified. And Jesus says, you know what? Don't care about what your rights are. Go ahead and go with them too. Not just one mile, but two miles. Jesus' choice of example, his example here deliberately is disassociating him from the militant uh, Zionists that we're basically like saying we shouldn't have to do anything these Roman soldiers ask. He's like, you know what? I'm not getting into that debate. My plan is to transform you so much that you don't care about your personal rights. You care more about my glory. You care more about my kingdom. The idea here is let your response be spirit-led, not flesh-driven. <clears throat> I can remember we had some friends that were in Wisconsin and they had this like crazy experience. All right. They knew that strangely things were disappearing from their car. And what was unsettling for them was that their car was parked in their garage with the garage door closed. And they started talking with some other neighbors and the same thing was going on with their neighbors. And, um, you know, change or or um, a cell phone charger or something like that. And so what they did was they set up this whole, like, sting operation. They set up um, a, a uh, security alarm that if a door opened in their garage, they would hear a sound in their bedroom. And... The, um, Gene, the husband, you know, he, he set this up. He set a shotgun on his dining room table. And they knew that it kind of happened every so often and things. And so pretty, much, pretty sure, or surely, he was laying in bed. The little alarm goes off. He pops out of bed. He goes, grabs the shotgun, busts open the garage door, and there's this teenage kid standing in his garage. And he's like, freeze. Hold it right there. And the kid's just like, you know, I'm going out the door. And so Gene comes over, and, and Don, by that time, is up at the door. And he's like, cover me, hands her the shotgun, jumps down to the, the garage, was a few steps below, gets down there and kind of wrestles this teenager down and stuff. And, and, and they finally, they, the, the deputies, the sheriff's deputies get there, and, and um, you know, they, they get the kid in handcuffs. And I still kind of laugh a little bit because Don says, here I am standing as, as they're carrying away. And she says, we will prosecute to the furthest extent of the law. She was heated. You know, I mean, if you can imagine, their adrenaline was pumping. They're like, you know, and she said it was like the most nerve-wracking and yet, yet exhilarating, I guess, thing that they had ever done here. So is there anything wrong necessarily with prosecuting to the furthest extent of the law? No, not necessarily. But my hope for Dawn is that 
And I'm not saying, okay, this is what Don and Jean should have done. Like, not do that. They should have done this. My hope for them is that given some time, let that heart rate calm down. Lay their rights before the Lord. That they could have a spirit-led response rather than a flesh-driven response. And I'm not saying they shouldn't prosecute. I'm not saying they shouldn't follow through. But what I'm saying is, and what I believe Jesus is speaking to here, is if you're sitting there going, I know my rights, and I better get them. Jesus is saying, hey, am I changing you or what? Am I leading you or what? Am I in you or what? How about we talk about it? How about you let me lead your response? Don't be driven around by your flesh. Don't be driven around by your pulsing impulses. As God transforms us, we're to respond differently than other people. We're to seek how God would want us to respond to poor treatment. That's, that, that's, that may be very different than exercising our rights as tax-paying American citizens. The Holy Spirit may just impress on us to give up a right for God's glory. Let your response be spirit-led, not flesh-driven. As we want to do in, in everything in how we apply God's truth to press you into your relationship with God. What does he have to say? There's another thing that we have the opportunity to, to kind of touch on here this morning. And it, as I mentioned, Entire systems of ethics, how should we live these ideas? Entire systems of ethics have been based on the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. And and there's a particular situation that we have all pretty much found ourselves in, either uh, on the receiving end of it or on the speaking end of it. And that is, you have a child or you were that child and something wrong has taken place, there, there needs to be some amends to what has been done, and that child is being told, say you're sorry. And that child is just looking at you like, I'm not sorry. You, you need to say you're sorry. And that child just kind of like, grits their teeth, they look at that other kid that they've hurt, they say, Sorry. Or they might even say, okay, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry, okay? Or, you know, what we do as an adult, you know, as we get older, we're like, I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> right? Now, is the person, is the child lying? Are we then supposed to stop and go, no, you're not? <laughs> Are we teaching them? Well, it doesn't matter what's going on in your heart. All that matters is that you say the words. I mean, I'm a parent. I've been a parent of little kids. I'm a grandparent. I'm already thinking about these things. You know? It's like, what should be going on here? We've all been in these situations. What should be our goal? Just to make sure they say the right words? 
to shame them until they actually feel sorry, and then they can say they're sorry? I believe that how the teachings on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount define the ethic that we should have plays into this scenario. And it's an it's a system, an understanding of ethics called biblical virtue ethics. Biblical virtue ethics. And, and it's stated in your notes, let your improving actions flow from a growing inner virtue. Let your improving actions, those actions that Jesus is coaching you along, this is how you should live. This is how you should behave. Let them flow from a growing inner virtue. And we see this come up when Jesus teaches in Luke 6. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Doesn't that make it all perfectly make sense? Right there? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But you can see here Jesus is connecting the fact of our behavior, what behaviors we take, they come from the heart. As the heart changes, our behavior will change. Well, guess how when is the best way to change your heart? Don't do bad things. Let God train you in what is right. So how do we develop a heart of integrity? How do we develop integrity in our heart? The idea of virtue ethics, biblical virtue ethics kind of explains that. Doing the right thing, an ethical action, doing the right thing should flow from wanting to do the right thing. Virtue. We often need to get into the habit of doing the right thing in order for our heart to want to do the right thing. And doing the wrong thing will affect our heart and cause it to desire to do more of the wrong thing. So doing the right thing, ethics, because we want to do the right thing, virtue feeds into each other. It's not one or the other. As we're letting God transform our heart, he leads us into right actions that fit his biblical standard. And guess what? If we look at scripture and say, that's what it says, that's what I'm going to do. That doing the right thing, ethics, God uses to transform our heart into virtue. And we start to do more of the right thing according to God's will. I, I, I love this image I thought of. This is the flywheel. And you can see this in your notes here. How does a flywheel work, okay? There's some force given to it that has to be supplied in order to, to make the flywheel turn. But guess what the flywheel also has? It has a little bit of weight itself. It's designed with some weight in its own self so that right at that right time, that after that force is relieved off of it, that weight furthers the motion. That, that extra amount perfectly placed weight furthers the, the, the built, it has a built-in power that is going to keep going. 
Imagine, if you will, like the, the force being provided is this is what you should be doing. And the virtue that is being built in the heart is that weight that carries the flywheel forward also. In parenting and in grandparenting, it's okay to say you, that you should feel sorry that you have done this. Even though you don't, you need to say you're sorry. My hope is that you will learn to feel sorry for these things. Uh, it's, it, just to speaking into that situation, it's, it's usually helpful to say, okay, so let's ask, let's ask your brother, how did that feel to get hit in the head? But, it, you know, we don't need to say that. Impressing the standard of doing the right thing for the purpose of shaping the desires, that's the goal. The goal is that the child will want what is right out of a growing desire to do what is right. And also from experiencing the blessing of doing what is right. But this just doesn't matter in raising children, okay? Understand, the original readers of the New Testament, they did not grow up in Christian homes, right? Their entire culture was bent against the things of God. And here, the gospel comes into town. And, and people receive Christ as their Savior. And a church is formed. And they have got 40 years of going to the pagan temple and seeing the, the temple prostitutes. In fact, I, I, I love how, how uh, 1 Corinthians talks about the baggage that so many had brought into their relationship with the Lord and their relationships with each other. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love how he's saying this. We're not just talking about people outside of here, folks. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You can teach an old dog new tricks. By asking the Lord to help you to do what is right. Help in, in doing what is right that it would shape your heart. That it would build integrity. That it would build virtue. That it would change your desires. That you would actually want to do what is right. As their spiritual parent, Paul writes to his readers, imploring them to do what is right as actually God works on their desire to do what is right, the virtue of their heart. Where he says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. You say that as a parent? All right, you've done well when I'm around. Let's see how you do when I'm not here. So Paul tells his readers, work out your own salvation. Do what is right with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Both to will, change your will into virtue, and to work. Do right actions for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. 
for it is God who is at work in you. He's building that virtue in your heart. So this morning, Jesus has taught us two ways in which we should let God transform us as we follow him. One, let your trustworthy word speak from integrity. Don't have to say, I promise I'm not lying. I swear. Don't have to. Let God transform you into a trustworthy heart of integrity that people say, you know what? I know if you say yes, it means yes. And let your response to other people's really insulting actions, let it be spirit-led, not flesh-driven. Let's bow our heads.